But if you will take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. We will be continuing the series that Pastor Tim started several weeks ago. And walking through the gospel. Trying to take a big picture look at this. While it is small in content, it is rich in substance. And we have come to see very clearly that uh, Mark's purpose in this gospel is to make it clear that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Uh, that, that's kind of hard for us to really uh, not take for granted being believers, having grown up in church, or maybe you've been a believer for a while. And Well, of course Jesus was God. That's, that's what we believe in. But in the day and age in which Jesus came to be, as we celebrate his birth during this season, uh, we have to remember uh, that there were individuals... Uh, throughout the world who did not have any clue about what the scriptures were about and those who did well they didn't have a calendar the way you could go pick it out okay this is where God is going to come and be with man and this is where he's going to show himself to be our savior and so when we look in the life of Jesus it's interesting to see how faith was being developed in the lives of those who were around him I think that that's something that we should remember as we go through this study and as we study Scripture as a whole. So we need to understand that our faith is in the process of becoming more and more mature. That we need to understand that once you are uh, to a point where you make a decision or make a commitment that all of a sudden now I understand everything and uh, I know everything the Bible has to teach and I know how to live and I know how everything works and I'm never going to make a mistake... If that's your process going into being a Christian, then you will not last long. Uh, and you will have to start over, which unfortunately there are many within Christianity who think that's what the whole process is about. Let's just start over. And it's not. Amen. It's about understanding that our faith will grow. And as Pastor Tim mentioned earlier in chapter 8, in the most recent message, that there was a man just wasn't by coincidence it was intentional that there was a blind man who would be brought to Jesus to have his sight restored and that sight was not restored instantly he rubs mud on his eyes and the first thing he saw were looked like men as trees well that's not what men look like It was close. It was closer than looking like a rock that was flying through the air. I don't know what else he could have thought of. But his vision was not quite where it needed to be. One more touch, then he was able to see clearly. That ushered in this question that Jesus had for his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who does everybody else say that I am? Peter makes a bold statement. At which we celebrate that, well, Peter's on the right track. He, he must have it all together because his response was, you are son of God. You are, you're the Messiah. And Jesus makes a very strange statement after that. After Peter says, you are the Christ, in verse 29, in verse 30, Jesus says, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That makes me scratch my head. Jesus, Peter just made it real clear who you are. 
Why did you tell him and your other disciples, don't say anything about me? Well, hopefully, God will give us insight to understand even more as to what he was doing in Peter's life and what he is seeking to do in our life today. Father, I need your help. Uh, I'm insufficient. I am utterly unqualified to speak on your behalf apart from your grace. And so, Father, I come before you humbly knowing that the people you have called me to speak to this morning include people that you have purchased with the blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. These are your people that you've called out by your name. And your word that your spirit has inspired is going to work in their hearts even as you have been preparing them for today. And Lord, I believe that there may even be those in this congregation, people who are not yours, at least not yet. Their eyes have not been opened to see who you are. Their ears have not been opened to hear the gospel and to understand. Father, whatever it is that you are working, I pray that you will be successful. I pray that you will accomplish that which you have set forth to do according to your eternal purpose. And I pray that we would glorify you in that. And along the way, Father, I pray that we would understand. Help us to see Christ and Christ alone. I pray that we would see Christ in a way that would bring joy and peace to our hearts that we can't find anywhere else. And I pray that your word would find good, fertile soil to grow over time through experiences and in circumstances, Lord, so that our faith would be pleasing to you. And that you would be able to accomplish much through our lives and through this church because your word is powerful. I pray, Lord, this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus began to teach about who he was. That's the reason why he told Peter and those around him, don't tell anybody about what you just said or anything about me. It says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. You may recall earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus made a transition where he was broadcasting the Gospel He was preaching the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is here. And because of the obstructed hearing and the inability to see and the refusal to believe, Jesus began to speak in parables because now this message that was so clearly preached but yet refused is now going to be hidden. And to only those who were given eyesight and only those who were given the ability to hear would understand. And so parables were being used to, for lack of a better way of putting it, to disguise the truth from those who would reject it. But yet here, Mark says, Jesus spoke clearly. He was speaking to those whom he had called. He was going to give them the message of who the Messiah truly is. One who would come and be rejected, who would suffer and ultimately die. Well, ultimately is not correct, is it? Because ultimately, he would be raised. 
This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the one who the Old Testament had prophesied concerning. And he said this plainly. And Peter, Lord, thank you so much for taking the time to explain that to us. I was thinking you were somebody else. I was thinking you were going to come mightily. I was, I was thinking that you were the son of man that Daniel saw coming who was going to rule mightily. You were the one that I thought Isaiah was prophesying about that would come and he would rule with a mighty rod. No. Peter rebuked him. Jesus, you know not. Surely, you're, you're, you're confused. Surely, you, you don't understand what your purpose is. You're, you're the Son of God. And Jesus did not turn the favor in privately rebuking Peter. It was almost as if Jesus took his arm and placed it around Peter and turned him around to the rest of the crowd so that everyone else would be able to hear what he was about to say. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You adversary, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pretty plain talk. Jesus was not speaking in parables. He was making it very clear that the things of God are not the things of man. What we would choose, what we desire, the way we would do them, and the power in which we could carry them out is not God's plan. We are in an age in which every election cycle brings about a sense of hope in the lives of many people hoping to overcome issues that have been brought in through either the past groups in leadership or whether the circumstances have become worse beyond our worst dreams and somehow we hope that there would be one who would come not humbly not as a servant we want somebody that can actually change things Someone who can take action and right all the wrongs that are being taking place in this world. We want somebody who is strong. We want a winner. We want somebody who has been successful. We want somebody that we can be proud of. We want somebody who can lead us into victory. We're no different than the disciples. You have to remember the disciples and those in that day were living in a very oppressive day. We know nothing of being overtaxed. Now, that's not to say that I'm not going to complain about it. But we know nothing of being overtaxed. We know nothing about living in a godless society. We think that the problems because we've been sheltered greatly so because of the grace that God has provided this nation to, to benefit from. We've seen how gracious God can be. We've seen how good God can bless. But we know nothing of how wretched and wicked and evil the world in which we live really is compared to those who lived in Jesus' day. But yet, that's what we want. We want careers that will provide security. We spend years in college we spend, growing, we spend years growing and learning a trade. 
We dedicate ourselves to, to education so that we can learn more and more about life, so that we can find a career, so that we can find a place in this life that will bring some security, that will help us deal with the issues that come our way, and we can pull ourselves up out of the mire that no one wants to live in. We want to know people that can help us, and we want to know people that have resources that can help us. And all of these things can be traced back to what really our values are. What's important to us. That's what we're going to seek after. That's where we're going to find our security. That's how we want to deal with the issues of life. We want our Savior to match up with what we think is important. We want our Savior to redeem us from what we think is the problem. Sometimes we may be close to being right. Sometimes we may be far, far away. Peter's incomplete faith in many ways represents us. We have so many good intentions. We've heard so many good things from God's Word and we believe them. And we, like Peter, take what we want. We hear what we want. We expect what we want without taking the whole. Well, Jesus is about to change that for those 12, as well as those of us who seek to follow after Him today. So to give you an idea of of the passage of Scripture we're looking at today, we're going to begin by considering Peter's incomplete faith. By the time we're finished, which should be around 1230 or so, uh, over here, by by the end... We're going to be. I'm a pastor now, so I can take that time. Uh, pastor, Tim, pastor Tim left. I don't. He, he saw my sermon notes, so he knows how long this is going to last. Uh, no, at the end, we're going to look at a father who had a demoniac son, and we're going to look at his incomplete faith, and we're going to see what we can learn from these two pictures of incomplete faith. While all the while, within this passage, right dead in the middle. It's a cross. A cross for Christ and a cross for us. And just on the fringes on each side of that, we're going to talk about the Son of God. Where He fits. Between our incomplete faith, the cross, here's the Son of God. Okay? So hopefully that will kind of map it. Maybe I just completely blew your mind and You're not going to be able to hear anything else I say the rest of the time. Incomplete faith, two examples. Peter, demoniac's father. The cross right here in the middle, the central point, and the Son of God. How this all works together. Okay? Let's go. Peter's incomplete faith, we've already looked at it. You're the Son of God. Yes, good answer. But you're looking at only one aspect of the Son of God. You're looking at the majestic king and the ruler who one day is coming back. As much as we celebrate Christmas every year, we should be celebrating every year of our life. Guess what? There's a coming king coming. He's coming back. He's going to reign. We should be celebrating that more than the fact that he's already come. As wonderful as that is. He's alive today. He's coming back. That's the one Peter was looking at. We should be just as excited about the Son of God coming again as Peter was about the fact that here he is. Now, 
That's the Son of God, right? Incomplete faith. Son of God. Who is the Son of God? Well, we have some commentary on who the Son of God is from a man named Paul. And Paul said that we should be like him, having the same mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It wasn't robbery for him to say he was God. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself to become a man. He took up the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, humbled himself. Peter, and let's face it, we, we, we don't want a humble Savior. We want a strong, mighty, overcome every problem of my life Savior. Now that's a good Savior. Don't, don't misunderstand. Peter wasn't completely wrong. He was just half wrong. We have a Savior, and we should embrace the Savior who humbled Himself. How much did He humble Himself? He humbled Himself even to the point of death. What type of death? Even the death of the cross. Amen. The cross. Verse 34. Calling the crowd to Him with His disciples, He's rebuked Peter in the presence of the other disciples. Now, calling the crowd. Everybody, come back. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to teach some more. He said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the angels. My experience growing up, I grew up in church. My parents are here. I'm frustrated. My wife is usually around when I'm teaching or preaching, so I can't use her or anything she knows about me as an example because I can't, you know, elaborate more than, you know, make it. Now my parents are here. Now my sister and her husband are here. And my sister knows me a lot better than my parents do, and my parents know me in many ways much better than my wife does. So I have to be really careful about what I say. But growing up in church, and even in some years of ministry as a pastor of a church, there was this dichotomy or this separation between being a Christian, being saved, and being a disciple. Being a Christian, being born again and being a disciple. Now some of you may say, well, I have no clue what you're talking about. Some of you do. 
Some of you are very familiar with that separation, as if there was some measure of comfort that when I fall into sin, I can still have confidence that I'm a believer on my way to heaven, but the fact that I'm not following as a disciple, well, that's, those are only super believers who are disciples. The pastor of your church, he's a disciple. Missionaries that go to another country to spread the gospel, he's a disciple. You can sit on a pew all of your life on your way to heaven and maybe one Sunday you may be emotionally fed to the point where, hey, I want to be a disciple too. You know me well enough to know I'm very sarcastic and I'm fighting the urges to be such as I preach the word. But let me Make something clear from God's word. There is no such dichotomy. I want to encourage you by saying something lovingly to you if you are there. If you're not a disciple, if if you're not following after Christ, if if you've never experienced what we're about to talk about, you're You're not here. Now you will fall and stumble. There will be moments and days where you may not be living as a faithful disciple. But there, there's, no, there's no gap. There is no gap. Jesus said, if anyone come after me, This is the same word he used for if any man thirsts, let him come to me. I will give him a heart full of springs of water. This is the same word that Jesus says if you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, come unto me. I will give you rest. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. And follow me. Not watch me. Not think about me or meditate on me. But follow me. The word come is is a really complicated word. It means to move from where you're at and to go somewhere else. Just thought I'd explain that to you. Just so that there would not be any misunderstanding. Jesus said you must not remain over there. If any man comes after me, you must move. Some are afraid that, oh, you just put a whole lot of effort into your gracious salvation. No, I'm just thankful God gives me the grace to move. But nevertheless, I move. If I don't move, then there is tragedy awaiting me. I'm sorry, I don't mean to get so excited here, but this is important stuff. Young people, you need to understand. God says you got to move. And in moving, that requires you to deny yourself. Person working on your pension, trying to find some security for retirement, 
God says you've got to move. You've got to deny yourself. Those who are complacent saying, well, I'm just going to make it to church whenever I want to. I'm just going to do whatever, you know, whenever the Spirit moves me. God says you've got to move. And that means you've got to deny yourself. Let me give you some biblical examples of denying yourself. Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things that I may win Christ. All things. Jesus confronted people who said, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, well come on. Well, well, wait a minute, I've got to go bury the dead. Well, let the dead bury their dead. But, well, well, Jesus, I'd love to follow you, but I've got people at home. I need to go send them away. I used to think that that was just what preachers told people who didn't come to church on Sunday night because they had company on Sunday afternoon. But this is, you know, this is more involved. This is about trying to take care of those who are around me. Well, I've got to take care of them first. Well, Jesus says, you know what? A plowman's not worthy of his hire. If he puts his hand first to the plow and then he, he looks back. Amen. Denying yourself. It reminds me as a young person and not long after we got married, being out from under the the headship of my father and mother. Now I'm almost providing for myself, working at a baseball card shop and going to school. You can only imagine the luxury we were living in. (laughs) 600 square feet of glamorous trailer for five years. Now that's not to downplay it because it it was our home. But I remember as a young adult, Getting my first credit card. Now some of you, my, my dad's a wise man. My dad does not frivolously spend money. My mother's here to attest to that. <laughs> but I didn't learn a lot from him when it came to money. I wished I had. But I remember that credit card of thinking, you know what? I've got power. Because this credit card allows me to go into a store and when I see something, they'll let me have it. All I've got to do is give it to them. Of course, some of you are too young to realize that when I gave it to them, they were still doing this number uh, with triplet carbon copies that I would receive the yellow one that said customer copy. And that enabled me to go in and purchase what I wanted. And you know what? I can go into another store that had no clue what I just did in that one, give them the same card, and I could take out something else. And as I was walking home or driving along, there's another place that I can go into that place as well. You know what? I can take that credit card, and they would give me what I wanted. Now, after 25 years of marriage, I think I've almost figured it out. That I have to learn to deny myself. Let me ask you a question. I'm not going to be probing into your heart and your mind as the Spirit of God is all too capable of doing, but let me ask you a question. When was the last time you denied yourself? Because only you know what that means. The fact that I don't drink coffee 
It's kind of hard for me to say, you know what? I designed myself today. I didn't drink any coffee today. Those of you who are drinking coffee, you got all that caffeine, your heartbeat's going to go crazy and you're going to die early. <laughs> but I denied myself. Because you know what? I don't have a desire to drink coffee. No matter how sweet, creamy, flavored, it, I, I don't care. That's not denying myself. But when Amy fixes lunch and asks me what I would like to drink, and I point out, hey, we've got that soda that we didn't use the other night, that you would never buy for me anyway, but because we have guests, you're going to poison them with it. Uh, but, you, <laughs> but we didn't drink it. And so therefore, I would like that. And she reluctantly allows me to pour out this nice glass of filtered water that would be so much better for my body and pour in the poison, right? I'm speaking a little, you know, crazy here, but you you get the point. That's what I really wanted because it tastes good. I don't care what it's doing to my body. I don't care how much it's gumming up the insides. I don't care what it's doing to, to my life. I want it. Now, that's small in comparison to some of the choices that we make. When was the last time you turned the television off because you realized that that was not wholesome for your eyes to behold? When was the last time you changed the radio station because what you were listening was giving you a philosophy of lust and greed and heartache? And you said, you know, I don't need to be listening to that stuff. They said, oh, you're getting legalistic now. You got that long list of things that we're not supposed to do. No, I don't. I can think back in my life where there were choices I had to make to say, you know what, I don't need to do that anymore. It's harmful for me. I've got to stop. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Which assumes the fact that you understand that what you are is not right. It needs to change. Can't be trusted. Then he says, take up your cross. Not a cross of salvation. (laughs) Thankfully, we've got multitudes of songs. Numerous passages that remind us over and over again that it's the cross of Christ upon which our iniquities were laid. So that when Jesus Christ died, He paid for the wrath that we deserve. It's been paid for. My cross is not for me to save myself from my sin. My cross is to save me from whatever I would do with my liberty in Christ. For Paul puts it this way, I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. Now wait a minute, Paul, you're still breathing. Your heart's still pumping. Brain activity's still going on. He says, well, the life I live is now by faith. Faith in what? In Christ. You know, the one who died and gave himself for me, that's who's living through me now. 
That's my cross. My cross is the one of Christ in saving me, but the cross that I bear is to keep me from using the liberty that he goes on to talk about in Galatians chapter 5, not for myself, but in service, in humility before God. That's what my cross is. And each of us as a follower of Christ has one. And he says, follow me. Once you've denied yourself, you've taken up your cross, now follow me. This is Pastor Tim was talking last time about some of the ways we talk about bringing someone to a decision, for lack of a better way of putting it. And using scriptural terms and phrases to suggest that someone needs to be saved. Perhaps we should include in that list quite often. Is there anybody here ready today to deny themselves? Not to, does anyone go to heaven? That, that's not a bad question. I don't know too many people who don't want to go to heaven. Does anybody want to have forgiveness of their sins? I'm not sure that if anyone acknowledged the fact that there's anything wrong with them, wouldn't want forgiveness of their sins either. But I wonder how many people that are sitting in a pew or watching a TV or listening to a radio or reading a book is ready to either die themselves and take up a cross and follow Christ. There's no difference. Oh, well, I want to go to heaven, but I'm not really sure I want to be a disciple yet. And guess what? You're not ready to be saved yet. Amen. We've got terms that people want to run from and, and want to use and characterize people. I'm just being using Christ's words here. And I'm using them very slow. I need to speed this up, I know. And, and there's a real serious consequence to what you do with this call. If you seek to save your life in this world, if you seek to find security in the things that you value, if you seek to save your reputation, if you seek to save yourself, Jesus says you're going to lose your life. That sounds like salvation or not salvation to me. Doesn't sound like discipleship or not discipleship. Sounds like salvation to me. He says anyone who would lose his life, and I love this, for my sake and the gospels, she'll save it. I think it's very important that we keep those two together, too. There's a lot of people in the name of Christ who aren't holding to his gospel. I think it's a sad thing, and, and I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the fact that there are men and women who have given their lives for this country. So that I can be free. So that I can think what I want to think and that I can say what I want to say without fear of being thrown in prison or being beaten up. But I think one of the saddest things that can happen in a person's life is for them to to expend themselves so that someone can be free in this land but never know Christ. That's, That's so sad. I mean, you're on the brink of the greatest sacrifice and the greatest love that you can demonstrate to anybody, but yet because you don't know Christ eternally your soul is damned. 
very akin to that is someone who spends their life living Christian principles, following after Christian truths, going to a Christian church, speaking like Christians speak, acting like Christians should act, believing they're on their way to heaven because Jesus Christ died on a cross and that He loves the world and that whoever believes in Him should never perish but have eternal life. But never deny themselves and take up a cross and follow Him. And to be left before Jesus Christ one day to say, Lord, Lord, would we not do many wonderful things in Your name? Sorry. I never knew You. Depart from Me, You worker of iniquity. How tragic. That's the reason why I'm so excited, not just bouncing off the wall excited, but excited about the fact that, that there is no gap. Peter thought there was a gap. Peter thought that the Son of Man was going to come and take charge and throw the Romans out and, and, and set up the kingdom of, of David and, and it was going to be forever. And then one day it will be. But Jesus came along and said, the Son of Man must suffer. He must die. He'll be raised again. And it's all about the cross. Now what's next? You remember? Incomplete faith. Son of God. Cross. Son of God. What Jesus tells him. Truly, in verse 9 of chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say there are some of you standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Oh, six days later, what happens? Peter, James, John, let's go fellas, we're going up to the top of the mountain here. Now again, Peter's incomplete faith, son of God, think he's nothing but the ruler. Jesus teaches him plainly, he's going to suffer. Here's the cross. Well, what might happen to Peter? What might happen to us? We think one thing. Jesus plainly teaches us another seemingly opposite truth. He's going to suffer. Well, maybe I had a Messiah all wrong. Well, no. I'm going to show you who the Son of God really is. And he took him up on top of the mountain, and at the end of verse 2, he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, even Clorox. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, and saying, well, wait a minute, what's, okay, slow up. The Jesus who humbled himself, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, and became a servant as he took on the likeness of a man. He humbled himself. Well, for just a brief moment, lift the curtain. They were so afraid that Peter said, this must be when we celebrate the, the, the Feast of, of Tents. And so let's just make a, a tent for Moses there and Elijah, and one for you, Jesus, and let's just stay up here forever. He didn't know what else to say. He was scared. And you think, well, well what? What's Elijah and Moses doing there anyway? Well, Mark being inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's not a coincidence. Who's Moses? The lawgiver. Who's Elijah? He's a prophet 
So it was spoken of by multiple Old Testament prophets as having to come back and be a forerunner of who? The Son of God. It's not really fair, is it? For the disciples have to spend all that time with Jesus and not having a clue. We got the Word of God and, he, and He's gracious to, to let us understand. So here's Moses, the lawgiver. The one whom the Son of Man is going to completely fulfill in perfection. Here's Elijah, and here Jesus is talking to these men. Now how they knew that they were Moses and Elijah, I don't think they had the portraits up on the wall. But they knew who they were. Jesus communicating with them about what, I wonder. Hmm. Maybe about what they were prophesying about. Maybe what he was... I had no clue. But it was good. And they were changed. The Son of God revealed Himself. Again, He didn't just leave Peter to think, okay, the Son of God is this majestic ruler who's going to come and overthrow everything. Nope, He's going to suffer. There's going to be a cross. A cross that you yourself, if you're going to follow me, we're going to have to take up one too. But don't forget the fact that the Son of Man, that the Son of God is still supreme. That He is God. And that God's voice even came down and said, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Confirming that He's the Son of God. But that's not even all. They said, we're coming down from the mountain. They were talking about Elijah and him coming to first restore all things. In verse 13, but I tell you, Jesus says, Elijah has come. Speaking of John the Baptist as a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah. And they did to him whatever they pleased. And notice that next phrase. As it is written. Any confirmation of God's work, past, present, or future, and you write this down, no pun intended, will be according to as it is written. You're going to have a lot of people say a lot of things about what God is doing. I'm not going to believe any of it unless it conforms to what is written. That means it's not true. It just means I can't confirm it. I trust that you will have the same discernment because we have the lawgiver, we have the prophet, we have Jesus reminding them as it was written and all in relation to who the Son of Man is. Now, we'll quickly move through. We've seen the progressing nature of faith. We've seen how here, through the Father's Word, but ultimately as it was written, how that substantiates our faith. But here, the potential impact of our faith. Miracles, again, are not circumstantial. They didn't just pop out of the air. They are intentional. So when Jesus and his three disciples come down off the mountain, they find the other disciples arguing with the scribes because, well, I told you you couldn't heal that demoniac. I know you couldn't do it. Yes, we can. We're his disciples. No, you can't. They were arguing. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and said, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Verse 18. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Okay, what's that here for? 
Well, as Jesus asked the man how long has this been happening to him, he said it's from his childhood. This boy who was not able to speak or hear. He loses control of his body. And his father says that even wants to cast him into the fire and water in ways that wants to devour his life. Do you know of anybody who lives a life that seems like they're just they're running towards being drowned or they're running towards being consumed with fire? It's just that their life is just constantly going to places that's destroying them. This spirit, this this demon that was possessing this young boy throughout his life causes his father to look for help. And just as we often do, Jesus, if you can help us, we sure would appreciate it. And Jesus responds, if I can help? If I can help? If I can help? Remember Peter's incomplete faith? Well, this, this father, he had faith. At least he brought him to Jesus. He knew that Jesus, or hopefully one of his disciples, would be able to help. Jesus, if you, if you could help. And he says, if I can help. All things are possible for the one who believes. All things. And I can relate to this man. Jesus, I believe that. Just help my unbelief. My faith's not complete. I read God's word sometimes, and some parts I can say, you know, I believe it. I got it. Some parts I'm like, hmm. There's some things that God calls me to do and because I trust Him with my life, I say, I will do it or I will not do it. And then there's sometimes I look and say, eh. I kind of like the temporal joy. I kind of like the credit card thing. I kind of like getting what I want when I want it. Without thinking that my soul is being consumed in my lust. Jesus saw that the crown was running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit. And notice, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. Now wait a minute. Does that sound familiar? Demon possessed. Jesus delivers him. He's as dead. Y'all been following this morning? Incomplete faith. Jesus teaches. Jesus delivers. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Let him die. Why? So that Jesus will say, wrong folks. Took him by the hand, lifted him up. And he arose and we had entered the house. His disciples asked him, Why couldn't we do that? 
And Jesus says, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What's prayer? What's good prayer? When we make supplication on behalf of others, Lord, if you can help us, we pray for our, our sister churches who are preaching the gospel. Lord, if, if, if you can help them. Lord, if you, if you can help that precious young couple that's, that's, that they're sacrificing everything so they can go to the far reaches of the world into a Muslim country sacrificing their life and their children. If you can help them. Jesus says, all things are possible if you believe. Where's your faith? The Son of God should change our faith. The more we understand the Son of God, the more we will believe. The more we embrace the complete Son of God, the suffering Savior and the reigning King, the more we're going to be able to deny ourselves. Take up our cross. Follow him.